0: But I also realized that we'd had the technology, resources, ingenuity to solve the climate and ecological crisis for many decades. And yet, critically, what we lacked was the mindset, this kind of mass mobilization and challenge of the kind of stories that we subscribe to as a culture. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi.
1: Hello, fellow do and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi, an activist who is passionate about social impact and building a truly sustainable future. My goal with this podcast is to invite each of you to care a little bit more every day so that together we can build a better world and reverse global warming, even regenerate Earth. If you've been listening to this show for a while, you know I'm a big fan of Paul Hawkins' work and especially his new book, Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation. And if you haven't, you should go back to those episodes. I interviewed him in September and did an 11-podcast series after the interview covering all of the content of that book. So, If you don't want to read it, though I encourage you to, you can go through step by step. Today, I'm thrilled to introduce you to someone that Paul Hawken himself insisted that I connect with, and that's Clover Hogan. Clover is a vibrant 22-year-old climate activist and force of nature herself who has been hard at work safeguarding your future. She has been featured in Financial Times, Independent, Vogue, The Guardian, The New York Times, and National Geographic. She's even got a TED Talk. In short, she's done more in 22 years than I've done in 45 to save our precious planet. And I'm ecstatic to get to know her with all of you today. Clover, welcome to the show.
0: Oh, thank you so much for that, Stella. Introduction, I'm blushing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, seriously, in 22 years, I'm double that age. And while I have been activated with regard to our climate since I was in my teens, I have to say... I'm blown away at everything you've done by the age of 22. I've listened to some of your podcasts and also some of your guest appearances, and I just have to ask you to tell us about how you advocated for your education and the health of our planet from that early age of 12, even convincing your parents to move to a different country for your schooling. Let's start there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, starting with the big questions. Well, the first thing I want to say is that I think we see this kind of trend in young people engaging at an earlier and earlier age. You know, I think the standard was a few years ago, maybe to see 17, 18 year olds out in the street protesting. And now I encounter 11, 12, 13 year olds who are so articulate, so eloquent and passionate and so clear on the kind of changes that we need to see. So there's really an, an intergenerational movement that is taking place, and I know for me, you know, on a personal level, I've kind of had this fire under my feet, driven by the you know urgency of what feels like this kind of doomsday clock, but also driven by you know the movement that is happening all around us and this real momentum for change. So. When I was 11, I was growing up in tropical North Queensland in Australia, iconically fishing frogs out of the toilet and dodging snakes that hung from the ceiling. I used to go down to the seafront outside our house and rescue beach sea turtles while avoiding the mud crabs that would stick out of uh, the ground with their claws in the air. So I was very lucky to live... Immersed in nature and develop that ecophilia, that deep connection with the natural world all around me from a really early age, which I think is some backdrop to why it came as such a shock to me when I learned about the climate and ecological crisis. I didn't learn about it in school, I didn't learn about it over listening or over my parents' shoulders as they watched the news and they watched the TV every night. but. I learned it through documentaries. So at 11, I sat glued to my computer screen, staring at these images of million-year-old forests being bulldozed to produce Big Macs, watching dolphin hunts that turned the shoreline red, watching graphs projected by Al Gore that showed how quickly we were devouring the Earth and how good we were at pretending otherwise. And I remember feeling profound sadness, grief, anger frustration, and perhaps beneath all of that, I felt incredibly confused. I couldn't understand how I hadn't learned about this in the classroom or at the dinner table. But amidst the, that kind of smoothie of emotions, I was determined, you know, and as much as I felt those really difficult emotions waking up to the crisis, I felt deeply inspired by the people making these documentaries, bringing light to the issues and inspired by them, I declared at the dinner table one night to my parents that I wanted to become an environmentalist and I wanted to commit the rest of my life to this cause. And being the brilliant people that they are, I managed to coerce them, or they allowed themselves to be coerced perhaps, into moving to Indonesia at the age of 13 so that I could go to a place called the Green School. And that is wallless bamboo classrooms in the middle of the jungle where kids really learn by doing and where instead of asking students to pursue a convenient career, our teachers really asked us which problems in the world we wanted to solve. So that was the first time I really had the space to channel all those difficult emotions that I'd been grappling with from that first documentary I watched, really channeling them into action and channeling them into the problems uh, that I saw all around me.
1: Well, I have to say, I probably watched all of those same documentaries. I think you're speaking to likely The Cove, which is heartbreaking. I um, spent, wow, 10 years building a fish oil company and really understanding what is happening in our oceans around the world because of the research I had to do to even sell the products, right? And one of the things that is unavoidable, even if you're being a very responsible company, is that there are people who are essentially pirating the oceans. What has been happening off the coast of Peru is really disheartening. For instance, even though they have supposedly marine stewardship council certified level blue fishery there off the coast of Peru, where a bulk, a majority of all the sardines and anchovies that we eat are sourced from, even though that's the case, 15,000 dolphins a year are illegally captured and killed. And part of the underlying reason for that is because local fishermen who don't have the giant trawling vessels and other equipment that enables them to, let's say, capture the tonnage of fish when fishing is open, so to speak, well, they start to look at dolphins even as competition. And so they're not harvesting them for even meat. They're just killing them and wasting them. And so that sort of knowledge, when you learn it. It's like you can't unlearn it. And I will say it probably fed into my ultimate decision to leave Nordic Naturals after nine years of building it, after being so ingrained in it that it wasn't just a company I worked for. It was like I was Mrs. Nordic Naturals in a way, because I saw the problem as connected. Regardless of what you do, if you're, it's like, if you use palm oil in a product that you manufacture, even if it's sourced ethically, right, and you've done all of the legwork, you're still supporting the use of palm oil and the bad actors. So it's a very complex situation where if you're really voting with your dollars and your intention, you have to step back and say, okay, I can't use palm oil in any products that I manufacture. I can't choose to use fish from an area where this is happening. And guess what? These are global connected systems. So even if you are doing it responsibly in your little corner of the world, it impacts global systems because everything is literally connected. The oceans of the world are literally connected. (laughs) So I mean, we're in a mess.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I think you you touch on a really important point there, which is that moment of waking up to how we're part of the problem and i remember that was one of the most difficult to reconcile feelings at 11 because one of the documentaries i watched was food inc and kind of learning about animal agriculture for the first time and that was when i started to join those dots of oh okay so what's on my plate at the end of each day or perhaps three times a day is directly contributing to these problems. And then that extended to learning about the palm oil industry and living in Indonesia, you know, the sky would turn yellow for three months of every year. And you'd realize, oh, that's because they're burning Borneo, like they're clear cutting and burning the forest that's on my doorstep. And you start to wake up to this. And I think, you know, that feeling of being complicit, you know, is enormous source of kind of guilt or at least it was for me and i think when faced with those emotions it's really easy to want to shut down because you suddenly realize that pretty much every part of how our lives are designed in the 21st century are somehow contributing to the climate crisis or you can kind of flip that and say okay well this is an invitation for me to really rethink how i navigate the way that i show up every day by way of my lifestyle or in your instance you know what you're doing for your 9 to 5 you know how you're showing up in the workplace
1: Right. Well, and I think it's very overwhelming for people to see that and start to feel complicit because that it's like, well, what do I do? How do I make a change? And it's, you know, do I need to stop eating meat and live in a treehouse? This is like too much for me. I'm going to call it in. I give up. I'm going home. And so I think it's important to think about where people are and how they can make small changes to move in a direction that will have a greater impact with time. Because otherwise, I think we can move from agency into overwhelm and then just start to essentially shut down and ultimately not be active or engaged in our place in the world because it's too much. I can't change it on my own. So I just wondered if you could provide some perspective on how you are supporting both young people and that intergenerational perspective to ensure that we have some agency that we're able to move forward with with confidence and really have a more positive outlook on what our impact can be.
0: Yeah, thank you for the question. And just to build on that for a moment, you know, I think a huge barrier to lots of people engaging with sustainability, social impact issues is really this expectation of perfection. And there's kind of this thought that well, unless I do everything perfectly, unless I'm vegetarian, and I recycle everything, and I don't buy fast fashion, all of this, then I can't engage. And there is a lot of gatekeeping within the sustainability and climate spaces as well. And, you know, I've kind of taken it upon myself as I grow my own platform to show up with a lot of kind of vulnerability and honesty about how inconsistent I am as a self-proclaimed environmentalist, because I think in giving myself license to be human and make mistakes and and not have it all right or not have it all perfect, that kind of opens the door for some other people to engage. But to your question, when I was 16, I went to COP21 in Paris. So it was really my first time going from grassroots activism to suddenly engaging with global leaders and decision makers for the Paris Agreement. And there was so much pressure placed on this one moment as there is i feel with pretty much every cop that has happened in the years before i was born and and since going in with this really starry eyed optimism because for the first time i was like oh you know i can sigh you know some relief of world leaders coming together around a table to really act with the urgency that this emergency requires. And the first event that I went to was something called the Sustainable Innovation Forum, sponsored by the likes of Coca-Cola, BMW, Shell, you know, iconic polluters and contributors to climate change. And I remember feeling that it was like going to a conference on lung cancer sponsored by Philip Morris, the cigarette (laughs) company. And... I felt crippled by the hypocrisy and the blatant kind of unapologetic greenwash and hearing from these kind of polished, suited people in historic seats of power, you know, making promises far enough into the future that they required no immediate action. And I was familiar with the anxiety and the anger and and all of those feelings, but never before had I felt so powerless in those moments. And Really allowed myself to think for the first time perhaps the system is too broken, perhaps the problem is too big, and perhaps most devastatingly, I'm too small to do anything about it. And it was a few months later, back at the Green School, that I was taking a class on environmental psychology. And my teacher introduced me to this word, ecophobia, coined by environmental educator David Sabel in 1996. And he defined it as the feeling of powerlessness to prevent cataclysmic environmental change. And it was this real light bulb moment for me because, for one, I realized that I wasn't alone in these feelings of powerlessness, but I also realized that we'd had the technology, resources ingenuity to solve the climate and ecological crisis for many decades. And yet, critically, what we lacked was the mindset, this kind of mass mobilization and challenge of the kind of stories that we subscribe to as a culture. So that was really when I decided that I wanted to learn everything that I could about the intersection of mindset and the climate crisis and you know, within that understanding the role of human well-being on a physical level, on a mental level. And that was really what led to the conception of Force of Nature, which I founded three years ago, which is a global youth nonprofit mobilizing mindsets for climate action. So we work with students through CEOs to really help them step up in the face of the climate crisis starting from a point of coming into conversation with those difficult climate emotions, whether that's climate despair or climate denial, and begin to understand the role of their own internal barriers and the necessity to dismantle them in order to dismantle the institutional systemic barriers that are getting in the way of solving this problem.
1: Well, you mentioned a few things that I want to touch on. And that is, I'll just be quite frank, I think most people in the United States don't even know what COP 21 through 26 are. So I would love for you to give kind of the 30,000 foot view for anybody who has never been doesn't really know what COP 26 or 21 22, 23, 24, 25 is and how it's actually designed to help us solve some of these global challenges.
0: Yeah, great question. I don't blame you for not knowing what COP is, if you're listening to this. (laughs) So effectively, we're now approaching COP 27 in the year 2022, which says quite clearly that there have been 27 of these annual conferences that have taken place, with the exception of the one year. We skipped one thanks to the global pandemic, but effectively, it's the one time where world leaders come together traditionally from policy, but increasingly from the private sector as well and from civil society. To really say, you know, how do we keep within 1.5 degrees of warming, which has kind of been established as the tipping point for climate collapse, the point of no return that we don't want to pass. And so this conference, it's called the Conference of Parties, has been running since before I was born. The challenge with COP is that the agreement that world leaders come to basically has to be passed by All of the kind of member states who are present in the room. And so that means there's a lot of really conflicting vested interests. It also suggests that the kind of structure and format of the policy is or the conference is kind of designed to fail. Because unlike, for example, comparable treaties like the agreement that was come to to limit the CFCs that were contributing to the hole in the ozone layer, or even, you know, nuclear treaties to disarm certain nation states, they began with a small number of countries coming together and really ratifying an agreement. So this is a much greater challenge because you're trying to get everyone around the table. And there's a huge kind of inequity when you think about, you know, countries from the global north, countries like the UK, the USA, or Australia, my home country, who have kind of already gone through their industrialization and their development are no longer as dependent on some of the dirtier fuels like coal versus countries like China or India who haven't benefited from those same resources and are now going through that development. So there are a lot of kind of competing interests and, the world leaders who are there in many ways kind of have their hands tied and so this year you know civil society was a lot more engaged young people were a lot more engaged and so alongside my team at force of nature and the other kind of youth uh, organizers who were there we really tried to kind of disrupt these corridors of power so instead of getting locked into the same mindset that has led to a really incremental outcome to COP each year. We really tried to push the needle and and push the transformative thinking that will ultimately lead to us realizing the transformation that we need. So COP is an important moment, but I think we realized that it is nowhere near enough. We really need to rethink so many of the systems that we have inherited. And unfortunately, we don't yet have the political instruments that we really need to achieve that other than for example, nonviolent direct action, people taking directly to the streets to really demand the kind of change that we need to see from our governments.
1: Wow. Well, I'm seeing some encouraging things from an entrepreneurial perspective that I want to mention for a moment and get your feedback on. Because you mentioned something I think that people don't think about. We're kicking the can down the road when it comes to environmental issues often. We'll say, oh, we solved it in our backyard. But The smog in China is overwhelming and a lot of the products that we get are manufactured there. It's because like we've essentially kicked the manufacturing can down the road. Now, if we're going to address these systems, I think we need to look at where there's a lot of waste, too. So one of my recent episodes, I interviewed Manik Suri, who is the CEO and founder of Therma. And he's Harvard-educated, super smart guy. He spent some time also in Washington, D.C. He's got a political little bit of background himself, too. But he acknowledged that the reality is there's places all around the globe where refrigeration is taking off. And refrigeration creates other greenhouse gases that you can't draw down from the atmosphere once they're released. And so what he's doing is working to actually optimize what refrigeration systems are doing presently by even not running them 24/7, like most refrigerators are set and forget. And then you have a global growth in, in these arenas where they didn't have really great refrigeration in the past. And the total emissions that refrigeration as its own set is responsible for is something like 7% of the annual <laughs> emissions and carbon offput as well as then again, other greenhouse gases which we can't draw down. So I know some of this is going to be addressed with technology, but one of the things I'm very concerned about, and I love your feedback on, is specifically with regard to the rare earth minerals that we're mining for to create all of these batteries around the world and essentially looking to create electric cars as a solution to the fossil fuel problem with regard to emissions. So I'd just love for you to comment on that and see what perspective you have given the research and the work that you're doing.
0: Yeah, you've touched on such an important point, which is the risk of taking a really kind of techno-utopian tunnel vision to the climate crisis. It's really convenient for us to say, well, this technological solution, like providing everyone with electric vehicles, that will solve the energy crisis, right? And of course, what we realize is that you know the problem is so much deeper when we're talking about the climate crisis it's not just about an energy transition we're talking about a consumption crisis we're talking about a centuries long economic system that is built on the commodification of nature and has been made possible by the exploitation and frankly the sacrifice of communities around the world so until you truly go to the cultural heart of the crisis we're not going to be able to solve climate change with The intersectionality with the kind of systemic lens that we need. And I think we're seeing this kind of rush of companies and profit based solutions jumping in and saying well, we actually can take advantage of this crisis right like we can make money off this technology and we might invent something that could really help a lot of people but we're going to patent it so that we can hold it you know close to our hearts and not actually trigger the kind of change that we need so we kind of need to do away with that and i think a really simple example last year elon musk tweeted that he'd be donating a hundred million US dollars to a prize for best carbon capture technology. And my first thought reading that tweet was like, oh, so trees don't exist right? Like, yeah. Easier to invest $100 million in some Silicon Valley billion dollar solution that invest in the solutions that are already, you know, literally under our feet. And this is why I love, deeply love the work of Paul Holkin, our mutual friend, and particularly his latest addition to Project Drawdown of Regeneration, which really says, you know, we have the solutions, right? It's about you know, at the heart, restoring our relationship to nature, not commodifying nature. And at the heart of that needs to be building fair and equitable communities. We can't separate our people from the planet. And so I think for me, we really need to start from that place. And I think that's why so much of our work at Force of Nature is really focused on the personal, emotional kind of moral relationship to this crisis. Because in interfacing with decision makers in boardrooms, we realize that You know, the conversation can't happen at a bottom line level. It really has to come to what does it mean to be human? What are the difficult questions we need to ask one another? And interestingly, whenever we have found ourselves in those rooms with big business leaders and ask them, you know, why are you here chatting to a bunch of 20 year olds about the climate crisis? It isn't because of, you know, COP26 or even some IPCC report. It's because their kids have come home to them at the end of the day and asked, mom, dad, what are you doing about the climate crisis? And so for them, it's about legacy. It is what is the planet that I'm handing over to my kids? And will they get to enjoy the beautiful natural spaces that I've had the privilege of growing up? So if we can bring it back to that level, I think we can escape some of the noise and the techno-utopianism that otherwise gets in the way.
1: Well, I'm preach, right? <laughs> <laughs> I will say that as an individual who I probably woke up to activism at age nine when I found that they were using rhesus macaques and just blinding them to do research on corneal dystrophies or how you could create surgeries to correct vision. And I thought at the time, okay, so I'm just going to go ahead and grab your baby and I'm going to blind it. And that's okay with you, right? Because essentially it's going to better the next generation of individuals. I mean, I don't understand how we could just take the life of something that is as intelligent and beautiful as a rhesus macaque and essentially maim it, right? And under my skin at nine years old, and I went around door to door in my neighborhood and got people to sign petitions that I then sent off because I was so upset by it. And yet, this is the part that I think is really hard for people to come to terms with, because even when they have that kind of real fire in their bellies, They might also benefit later on from something like LASIK that came as a result of, you know, all these years of animal testing. And it's like, well, I wanted to get that surgery to protect my vision or ensure that I'm able to go around and enjoy the outdoors without wearing glasses every day of my life. So we almost become accidental hypocrites is kind of what I would refer to it as. And I'm of that camp. I married a man whose father has corneal dystrophy, right? and he his vision has been solved specifically by a lot of the research that was done on monkeys before it was done on humans and so my own genetic realm now because i have children with this man and that's an inheritable disease it's quite possible that their lives will benefit from this if they ever develop a corneal dystrophy so these things are interrelated they're connected i just think that we can approach things in a better way if we're more mindful and if we aren't sitting there being self-serving To the point where we're saying, oh, well, I developed this technology and I'm going to patent it so nobody else can use it. And that is very much what the Elon Musks of the world do. They are not necessarily typically creating technologies that they will release into the wilds for everyone to benefit from. Now, I can't speak specifically to all of the technology that Tesla has created and what they're doing But what I can say is I live here in the Silicon Valley of the Bay Area, right? Really proximal to that. And it's like become this status symbol and icon to own and drive a Tesla that more than any other vehicle in the area. And so what you see is all of this increase in mining for rare earth minerals. Well, A lot of that is being done in Australia. There's now even talks of melting permafrost of Iceland to go ahead and get at rare earth minerals. And these are are things that will have a consequence later. So if we can think about even the technology that we're working to build, to create something that doesn't have the same kind of repercussions that might exist in some other way, if we can capture that lens and really go forward with intention through the young people that are working in research and through the industries that already exist, then we can create a more circular world, a circular economy, something that can regenerate. If we're all committed to it, and I know that that's not going to happen overnight, but I do believe that we can get there. And so I wondered if you could talk for a moment about your own optimism, having recently been at COP26, and as critical as we can be of the inaction that seems to come from these governmental bodies coming together for all of this. I know that's a complex question, but I just love your perspective.
0: Yeah, I struggle to respond to any question in a really simple, <laughs> straight to the fact way. So I'll take the scenic route. When I first woke up to the crisis and declared myself an environmentalist, I learned over the years to suppress those really icky feelings, the the grief, the powerlessness, the guilt of as you highlighted you know benefiting from many of the systems that are contributing to the climate crisis and it wasn't until november of 2019 where i could no longer suppress those feelings or perform those kind of mental gymnastics so this was during the fires back home in australia and living in london i would wake up read the headlines burst into tears Burst into tears in the shower, you know, burst into tears on the tube underground, much to the dismay of polite British society. And, you know, I was reading these headlines of two billion animals being incinerated in the inferno. I was scared for my friends and my family in the affected areas. I was watching Instagram stories of friends literally standing on the roofs of their homes, holding these hoses trying to beat back the embers and the smoke. And for me growing up, climate change was something that I read about in articles and watched in documentaries. And for the first time, like standing in front of a train, I was confronted with the enormity of this crisis and and what it meant for me on a really kind of personal, selfish level. You know, I was seeing the loss of my own country. I was seeing the loss of the very nature that made me an environmentalist in the first place. And so I had to kind of, I had no choice but to surrender to that grief process. And in that, in acknowledging that eco-anxiety and talking about it publicly for the first time, I felt enormous relief. And I realized the gift in those feelings because I could see then that the reason we hadn't yet solved the climate crisis was because as a society, we've gotten so good at switching ourselves off, and particularly those of us who live in a bubble of relative climate privilege, sleepwalking toward this cliff of climate collapse, even as the science tells us that that's where we're heading. And so leaning into those difficult emotions and and not trying to crowd them out with the false optimism or hope is incredibly powerful. And, and for me, that's why I'm so passionate about the research we've done at Force of Nature, kind of bringing to light the rise of eco-anxiety, particularly in young people, we've been able to show that across, you know, our students in 50 countries, over 70% of those young people feel eco-anxious. 70% of those young people feel hopeless in the face of the climate crisis, and only 26% of those young people feel that they can meaningfully contribute to solving the problem. And what we've seen is that, you know, eco-anxiety is the really healthy natural response to this crisis that we've inherited. Yet. When we lose faith in the systems that we've inherited, be that in our ability to you know, vote and go to the polls and not have to choose between a climate change denier or a seasoned procrastinator, or that's having faith in the products that we can buy at the supermarket and not just feeling that they're all greenwash. And also when we lose faith in ourselves, when we begin to entertain those thoughts of perhaps I'm too small, perhaps the problem is too big. That's when that anxiety, which is really healthy and necessary to wake us up to the crisis, that's when it can ferment into the ecophobia that I referenced at the start of our conversation, that feeling of powerlessness. So we really need to learn how to create space for that smoothie of emotions, all those difficult feelings, appreciate the gifts that they bring us, and then really channel them into action so that when we feel that fire in the belly, as you referred to it. We don't want to switch off because we're like, that's too painful. It's too confronting. But we say, that's isn't that amazing that I care so deeply about this issue that I'm awake and attuned to it. And I owe myself as well as owing my community and the planet that I live on to acknowledge those feelings and to really channel them into doing something about it. So for me, when I think about hope, it's multifaceted, it's convoluted, and it isn't Holding hope on one hand and, and holding despair in the other, it's how do I expand my emotional container for that range of feelings? And coming out of cop, I would describe it as having an emotional hangover because I'd gone through the incredibly high highs of connecting with my team and peers and community and taking to the streets and you know meeting the individuals from around the world who are leading the solutions. And at the same time, seeing once again, the hypocrisy, the greenwash, the incrementalism within those corridors of power. You know, I went to uh, all of the countries have their own kind of pavilions at COP, speaking to what they're doing to address the climate emergency. And I was not surprised to rock up at the Australia Pavilion and see, for one, they had excellent coffee, which was a huge pro. But They were sponsored by Santos, one of Australia's biggest oil and gas companies, right? So, you know, you have all this fossil fuel money, you have all this vested interest, you have all of this political power trying to stop change from happening. And that necessarily leads to the despair and everything else. So for me, hope I've realized I need to be selective in terms of where I look for it. I no longer look for it in those conventional places. I no longer look for it in the people who we elect into power, but I look for it in the people who have no choice but to act. You know, the people who are on the front lines of this crisis, the young people who are staring down the barrel of our future and are terrified of what we're inheriting. And, you know, I find it in the people who feel the powerlessness, who feel the despair and yet choose to continue to show up and, and do the work every single day.
1: Well, I love that. And you have given me two terms that I think I'm in love with now. Emotional <laughs> smoothie and emotional hangover.
0: <laughs> Good. You feel free to use them anytime.
1: <laughs> so I think this is getting me to really think about one thing. And that is, in this present time, we live in a very polarized environment where people are choosing sides on specific issues. And that has been the case, at least in the United States, with regard to the issues around environmentalism, people making it a political issue when it should be an everyone issue. And so I wonder what your thoughts are specifically about that. And I have one more kind of thought that I'd like for you to think about as we have this conversation. And that is with regard to this idea of cancel culture. Because what I'm now hearing from people is, oh, well, you're canceling them unjustly. But I really think this is like taking the concept of voting with your dollars and turning it into something that's somehow toxic, voting with your time, voting with your attention, the power of your intention, even as you approach something, as you become more informed. So what would you say to the person who's just frustrated with the issues overall? It says, stop canceling me or stop canceling the things that I want to do. And when you start to say things like, oh, well, Bitcoin currency is bad for the environment, and I'm investing in it and making money. So just stop.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what a another great question. I'll share a personal anecdote, because I think it kind of speaks to a few of the themes that you just touched on. So When I declared myself an environmentalist at the dinner table, my first action was to reject what my dad had just made for dinner (laughs) on the table, which was, you know, an array of different meat dishes. So I said, you know, my first act is to become a vegetarian. I don't want to eat meat anymore. I'm not interested. And with that, you know, I'm judging you intensely for continuing to choose to uh, eat meat. And my dad is French he's also a retired chef. So for him, me announcing my vegetarianism was like rejecting everything that he's ever cared about, you know, his love language to the family, how he shows his care for us. And to be honest, it was a source of real fighting and real contention in my family for many years. And we could never get on the same page. You know, I was arguing the ethics of the argument i was you know throwing a lot of blame at him a lot of guilt and everything else and on the flip side he could not understand where i was coming from and in fact it wasn't until i started my internship at impossible foods in silicon valley the company that makes meat from plants that I was able to, for the first time, communicate the science and kind of remove the the subjectivity of my own ethics, my own moral judgment, and really speak to this from the lens of, you know, how animal agriculture is the leading driver of tropical deforestation, how it taxes our water system, how it impacts friendly communities. And I was really able to speak to it in terms that he could understand and even then, you know, he didn't become a vegetarian or or anything close to it, but we could at least begin to speak the same language.
1: Well, try taking cheese from a Frenchman, and you might be up for a fight. You know what I mean?
0: (laughs) Honestly, and fast forward a a couple years, and I get this call from my mom and she said, oh, Chloe, you know, your dad and I have just watched uh, this documentary on Netflix about going plant-based and how great it is for your health. And your dad and I are going to try this whole vegetarian thing. And (laughs) initially I wanted to bang my head against the walls because I was like, okay, so I tried for 10 years to no avail. And it takes one documentary and you guys are all on board. But it was a really important lesson to me, which is that, We have to go to where people are. You know, there's this real barrier in the climate sustainability movement to say, well, because I care about this thing for these reasons, you should care about this thing for the same reasons, too. And, you know, that's never going to work. That's never going to be successful. And that's just not how, you know, humans operate. Right. We need to understand where people are coming from. And I think, unfortunately, climate has become hyper politicized. And yet, if we even remove the words climate change, and according to some really interesting studies that have taken place in the States, and just talk about the solutions that will deliver on climate action, whether that is regenerative agriculture and looking after local farmers and taking power back away from these huge kind of multinational food corporations, or it's ensuring that girls have access to education and that kids around the world have school uniforms so that they can, you know, learn and they don't have financial barriers, whether it's ensuring that we're not participating in this kind of fast fashion culture that has detrimental impacts when we talk about things in those really simple terms, you know, it ninety-nine percent of people can get on board with that and say, Yeah, you know, that sounds like a much better way of doing things. And you're also communicating that from the place of invitation. You're saying, How can we make the world a much better place? Rather than here's why you're bad or you're wrong for being part of the problem. Like we're all part of the problem. That's just the reality. So I think for those of us who are in the business of communicating the issues, You need to get off that kind of moral high horse and say, here's how I'm inconsistent. Here's how I contribute to the problem, but here's how I want to be part of the solution. And I'd love to invite you to be part of that too.
1: Well, I love that. And you're speaking to the beauty of talking about vegetarianism as plant based as opposed to vegetarian, because there is a stigma associated with it. It's like, don't take my barbecue from me. And I have this hamburger lifestyle. I want to be able to do what I want. And have the types of food that I like to eat, and that's just it. So we won't find substitutes because I'm in my habits and I'm in this particular spot. As we age, as we get older, we learn more, typically, that not eating those things is actually better for us, as you mentioned. I'm working to, uh, in my own home, get us off of dairy because of how dairy cows are treated. And you don't necessarily know, even when you're getting cheese, where that dairy cows were and how they were treated. I abut an open space preserve. There's a herd of cattle that are living naturally and migrate from one pasture to another. They're very well tended. I know the farmer that has actually put those cows on that public land as the rudiments that are required to preserve the ecosystem for the beetle and the grass that grows there. That's native to California. It's a nature preserve, right? And so I could go and buy half of that cow And know that I'm not having this negative impact on the environment specifically because of how these animals are raised and treated, right? But it takes a lot of work to get that in the know. You're going to pay more on a per pound basis for that animal than anything you get from the supermarket, but you're going to know how it lived, how it probably passed because they are very mindful of the entire process there. They are not dairy cattle. But they stay as a family unit for the entire life until they are taken, right? But it's a much more ethical way to raise animals and to think about things from a more sustainable perspective. So even if you're not willing to go plant-based fully, I love Jonathan Safran Foer's take of just not eating meat or animal products before dinner and making that simple shift to say, For these two or maybe even three meals of the day, I'm not touching animal products. The impact that that can have if we all would commit to something like that would be so much greater than if we didn't take that step. Because then we're not for two or three meals of the day supporting the KFOS farms that are the biggest part of the problem. And if we choose to still, you know, harvest meat and seafood and things like that, to do so from spots that we know to be ethical that we we know to have been let's just call it right minded like we're not we're not overdoing it we're not you know raping the ecosystems we're not just having a bunch of cattle sitting there on their own dung for the whole day so that even the milk that you would get from them is full of poop particles because they had nowhere else to lie down
0: yeah you raise a really important point just on the systemic nature of the the problem as well. And, you know, there, so much of the rhetoric has focused all of the blame and attention on individual actions. And I think this is part coincidence, but it's also largely a very coerced effort by the fossil fuel industry. I mean, you look at the fact that BP, then British Petroleum, now beyond
1: Petroleum through their, oh you know, my.
0: greenwash. <laughs> I didn't goodness.
1: realize they had rebranded.
0: Oh, yeah. You know, they love a rebrand. They literally came up with the carbon footprint calculator, which was, you know, evil, yet genius, because they said, oh, well, instead of people looking at us, we can actually put the blame on the individual. So the individual is anxious about, you know, how much carbon they're creating and what they're contributing. And of course, there needs to be this, you know, individual in collective effort, we all need to change the way that we show up, particularly for those of us, in privileged places like the UK, like myself, or, you know, in Australia, where we're disproportionately consuming uh, resources, but it has to happen at the system level. And, you know, I think there's also this really pervasive yet dangerous myth that people do not care about the issues when, in fact, my belief is that people are not empowered to care. And you touched on the fact that oftentimes, based on how value has been structured in the economy today doing the more sustainable quote unquote ethical thing is really expensive you know it is not an, even an option for a lot of people who are kind of priced out of that even our connotation with sustainability has kind of become like yummy mummies who drink oat lattes and can afford like shopping at whole foods or planet organic and And that's why grounding every sustainability, environmental conversation, social justice and equity is critically important. Because, again, this is how do we create fair, equitable communities where we have a true cost when it comes to the resources that we're using, when we have a true sense of value of how we're interacting with nature and critically where we're not making sustainability or access to clean air, access to clean water, yet again, something for the privilege that that's just not a world that I want to live in. But you know, more objectively, it's just not a world that's going to be able to deliver on the solutions that we need.
1: Well, it's not realistic. That's the reality. So I mean, there are people who survive on McDonald's because they can go and get a hamburger for a basic hamburger for less than a couple of dollars, right? So it's a reality of an economic disparity. It's also a reality of the privilege of knowledge. And so how do we educate the masses about the sorts of shifts that they could mindfully make? I mean, that's a question that I ask myself almost every day. It's part of the impetus behind this podcast. I was encouraged to find that my regeneration series actually became high school curriculum for a set of students in Ohio so that they could learn more about the challenges that we face from whether it be the fast fashion issue or how our food systems work, or agroforestry, and how we might look at our forest as a not only just really great place to be, but also a space to potentially harvest from, so that we bring the foods and onto our plates, as opposed to just let them become forest litter. So I'm just thinking about all of these bits along the way. One of the things that I've often championed on this podcast is just really choosing one thing. From this whole climate activistic perspective, just choosing one thing that matters to you to champion and become a little bit expert on and then take it from there. So for me, it really has been related to food because I'm passionate about food. I have a little bit of land. I compost. I'm now shopping almost exclusively for our produce at farmer's markets. So it's coming from local areas. It's not trucked in. And that means that the types of produce that I eat throughout the year and that my family uses shifts because of the seasons, which is also a health benefit to you because you're getting a more dynamic set of foods. And really the fact that I'm able to compost, I'm able to garden, I'm able to plant trees on my property that are fruit bearing. I've also now begun to look at guerrilla gardening (laughs) as a a possible next step. I'm teaching my kids about things like the strawberry trees that are around our neighborhood. They're almost only planted in industrial complexes. But now I've located where some of them are. And I'm like, we're going to go pick some strawberry fruit from a uh, strawberry tree fruit from there's a medical office that's close to our house that has them planted at every median between all of the parking areas and nobody touches them. So it's become something we're gleaning.
0: Yeah, that sounds incredible. One of my Favorite environmental activist here is um, Pam Warhurst, who started Incredible Edible. And really, this movement to take back, you know, abandoned or poorly used land in the UK, taking over abandoned parking lots and that kind of thing to build community gardening projects that, you know, not only produce people with amazing, fresh, organic food and enable food sovereignty, but also just bring people together, right? And kind of reweave that fabric of community and that that tapestry of connection that I think we feel that we've really lost particularly when you are living in a very built urban environment like London and perhaps don't know who your neighbors are you know don't, don't have your local you know places or, or people so I think yeah those kind of solutions are amazing because they're essential but they're also just accessible <laughs> and easy so yeah Kudos, sounds brilliant. I will need to go berry picking in a pot. <laughs>
1: well, I recently got to interview Ethan Welty on this podcast because I learned about what he's doing with falling fruit. And I just thought it was so incredible to just have a simple website out there that shows you fruits in different areas. So I've begun logging where the fruit trees are in my neighborhood on there as well. And I don't know how many people in my local area are using it, but I think it's really novel and it gets us thinking about, you know, where our food comes from in a different way. And I think the moment we start on that journey, that we can get to a spot where we just have a deeper understanding of what our impact is as we go about our daily lives beyond fuel consumption, which largely can be unavoidable and beyond, you know, having to use technology to communicate and the power that you consume to do so. And beyond the whether you're capable or at a stage in your life where you can do something like invest in solar, and all the questions that might erupt from that, like, how long is the solar panel going to last? Is it recyclable? And you just keep like kind of going into another wormhole.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: (laughs) I've just really enjoyed this conversation. And I want to offer you the floor to share any last thoughts that you might have with our audience. Or if there's a question that I haven't asked that you wish I had, go ahead and ask and answer it.
0: Oh, well, thank you. I think we covered so much ground that no further interrogations come to mind. <laughs> but I would just yeah, encourage anyone to check out Force of Nature, you can find us online by visiting forceofnature.xyz. We have a pretty funky URL. You can find us at that same handle on Instagram. You can find me at Clover Hogan. And, you know, we're really building an intergenerational movement that is global. And we're looking for people all the time who want to come into conversation with their climate feelings, but critically learn how to channel them into taking action in a really big and exciting way. So please do reach out. Um, We'd love to connect. We're growing our community every day. And otherwise, if you've made it this far in the episode, I just want to say thanks for listening in. and, And thank you, Karina, for having me as well.
1: Well, it was a lot of fun for me. And I will take some snips from this for those that don't make it through the whole episode to at least share in social media. Particularly, I think when we talk about emotional smoothies, I just love that term so much. You've given me, <laughs> <laughs> it's a gift to have a word combination like that. So thank you.
0: Well, thank you so much. And yeah, all the best of the podcast going forward.
1: Fantastic. I'll be sure to include links to where you can find Clover Hogan, Force of Nature, and links to the research and films that we talked about today. Just visit caremorebebetter.com for the complete blog, video interview, and a resource guide to unleash your inner activist. To receive the guide, all you have to do is sign up for our newsletter, and it will be in your hands moments later. As you consider your own activistic journey, I invite you to simply lean into discovery. Understand you don't know it all, and you can't know it all. Stay curious and hopeful. Ask questions. And most importantly, get involved. Pick something that matters to you and champion that one thing. You'll make a lasting mark that you'll be proud of. Thank you now and always for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we really can do so much more. We can care more and we can be better. We can even regenerate Earth. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people
1: and spread more social good.